Welcome to the Do More Good podcast. Now, if you're new here, prepare yourself for a journey filled with heartwarming tales and career wisdom from the movers and shakers of the third sector and beyond. Those of you who've been with us for the previous hundred episodes, rest assured, we've got the same three jokes you've become accustomed to, but more stories from people doing more good. I'm Kenneth, the Global Head of Commercial and Fundraising at the amazing organisation that is Part Run, and the kind of person who feels right at home busting a move on the dance floor of an industry conference. And I'm James, big fan of Spreadsheet Formula and Head of Public Fundraising at Sue Ryder. This is the Do More Good Podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good Podcast. The Do More Good Podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good Podcast. Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, back again for the Do More Good podcast. We are face to face. It's episode 104. How are you doing? I am very well, Kenneth. Very well. And nice to be back to face to face. We had our little intro one, but this is our first one with a guest back in our old haunt. It's I been know. a good few years since we have done this. 2019. Yeah. 2019, the last time we were sat here with a guest in Chapter 72 on Bermondsey Street in London. Mm. Place to be. It's a, and it's a glorious day as well in the capital, isn't it? Yeah. We were, we were complaining a little bit about how hot it was. But that feels like after a long winter. Yes. Uh, it's nice to be out in the sunshine. Cafe culture going on out there. People uh, riding past on bikes. There's a dog. It's like Notting Hill out there. It's <laughs> lovely. Hugh Grant wandering past, <laughs> spilling orange juice on people. It's great. You look like you're dressed for Notting Hill, actually, today. You could fit quite I'm well into the this. I'm fans <laughs> of uh, Notting Hill than uh, the Hugh Grant character. Yeah. But how you been? Yeah, good, mate. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, uh, it feels like we're getting back into, um, back into a routine of this. So, yeah, fine. I'm yeah. a bit jealous. Why is that? A little bit jealous. Is it, uh, th- we're recording uh, on the... Tuesday after Glastonbury. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I spent, you know, a bit of time. I, I, don't get me wrong. I quite like watching it on the sofa and then having a bed. That's quite <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I'm actually. Yeah, a bit jealous. My, my colleague went to Glastonbury and she got back in the office today and she said when she got into her bed yesterday, it was like, it was like falling into a marshmallow. I thought that was quite a nice description. It's almost worth doing five days on a blow-up, well, <laughs> a slowly deflating blow-up bed just to have that first night back. Yeah, it yeah. was brilliant though. Yeah, I watched a little bit of it. Not as much as I'd like, but uh, just seeing the coverage every year is always amazing. And you're kind of thankful that it didn't rain for those those people. Um, but you're off to Wales next week, aren't you? Oh, talking to singing festivals, Kenneth. Yeah. Yes, I am. I'm off to um, what is billed as like the international... Uh, competition to win for primary school uh, choirs. Right. So my daughter is singing in this. Um, we drive for six hours uh-huh. on Monday night to, wow. s- to hear her sing for six minutes and then we drive home. <laughs> right. Spend three days down there. I mean, it's lovely. It's very nice. Yeah. But we're going, yeah, 12 hours driving for six minutes of singing. <sighs> is, uh, that is the kind of commitment it takes. That is win. dad life. I that is dad life. It is, mate. It is. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I went swimming today. Oh, so swimming yeah, yeah. in an outdoor pool in the middle of Richmond. That was very privileged of me, wasn't it? But no, I've uh, had a bit of an injury from running recently, and you know, running is overrated. Overrated. I say that as well, working uh, at Park Run. Um, we'll get to running, but swimming is very good for you. That's swimming is good for yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. It was really nice. It was just a lovely warm day. Jumped in the pool, did a few lengths. I mean, I was the only one in there wearing armbands, but you know that seemed to go down all right with the rest of the the rest it's of the fine. swimmers it's in there. Yeah. But um, um, talking running, big records on. at Park Run. Oh, there was a big record. Did you hear about it? I so did. 
So last weekend, the Port Run world record was broken. Uh, a chap called, I wrote it down, Andy Butchart ran 13 minutes, 35 so seconds fast. for a 5K. He beat the world record by three seconds that was ran by Andy Badley. Yeah, just amazing. And I was, I, was, I was telling you just before we started that actually on BBC Sport, that story was above the fact that Linford Christie's 100 metres British record had actually been broken in the same weekend. Mm. And I think it's just a, an example of how people know part run, can understand, can relate to part run. Might not relate to a 13 minutes 35 part run, but... They certainly understand what that distance is like. So, yeah, that was amazing to see. Uh, and um, we're going to get technical on park runs here. Go on. Is th- are there particular park runs that people head for because they're fast courses? Are there, is, what's the one, you know, is there one to, to go for? Yeah, are you looking for a flat course or do you want... I don't Look, know. Yeah, the, the there is certain the courses. Some of them are really hilly. Some of them are up and down, different terrain. There is courses that are just... I think Dulwich Park Run is the one that I've been to that's just pure concrete the whole way around circular but look anybody's welcome you know so really the terrain doesn't matter whether you're running 1335 or one hour 35 it is absolutely up to you so yeah so on brand get yourself down to a part run uh, (laughs) anyway look let's crack on james because our our guest is patiently waiting hearing us rabbit on we've got a really exciting guest i'm really interested to talk to her further she's sitting there very patiently looking slightly nervous about what she's about to embark on but Please Rightly, be assured. I think. <laughs> it will be absolutely fine. So our guest this week started her career in the charity sector 25 years ago. After volunteering for various organisations during her early years, she became a frontline worker in Belmarsh Prison. And it was this experience that led to her focusing on making a difference. She joined the charity With You, formerly Adaction in 2015, an organisation which provides support to people experiencing issues with drugs, alcohol or mental health starting out as Director of Comms and eventually leaving the organisation in 2019 as Executive Director of External Affairs. Now, she continued her work in this field by joining Humankind, a charity that provides free confidential support nationwide for a range of conditions, again, responsible for external affairs, strategy and culture, before she moved on to her current position as CEO of DrinkAware. Now, DrinkAware was founded in 2006 It's funded by 130 industry organisations, initially focused on providing education around the use of alcohol. Its new strategy is focused on reshaping our relationship with alcohol and helping to influence societal change in a country where 20% of alcohol drinkers don't drink within public health guidelines. So we're really pleased to welcome Karen Terrell to the Do More Good podcast. Hello. Hello, Karen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being the first guest back face to face since 2019. How do you deal with that pressure? Uh, I am terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm greatly honoured. It's, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be in the real world. Isn't it's a it? really lovely thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's nice to be in a nice vibey local yeah. corner of London. So yeah. yeah, We've got the executive suite at the back of uh, 72. I mean, this is the level of glamour I expect <laughs> everywhere <laughs> Absolutely. now. Absolutely. We should get a velvet rope yeah, to uh, I think distinguish so. us from the, the hoi polloi outside. Um, quick question for you then. Would you prefer the outdoor swim in Richmond or the park run in Scotland? A park run in Scotland yeah. every park time. In Scotland. Yeah. Outdoor swimming, I'm not convinced by. I have, I have friends that love it. Yeah. I have friends that do cold water swimming. None of that looks appealing to me. <laughs> you know what? Sorry. That's what someone asked me today. They said, was the pool, was it warm? And I was like, yeah, it was, it's actually a water heated pool. So it was like 28 degrees. 
it wasn't quite the cold, freezing temperatures that you come accustomed yeah. to with outdoor swimming. But yeah, it was okay. really nice. 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 And would no, you be no. pushing that 13-minute uh, limit? Would you no, no, <laughs> no. The, the other, the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Good. Look, Karen, thank you so much for turning up and, and being here today. We really appreciate it. As with all our guests, we like to kind of go back to the start, talk about your experience, your journey into your role, and the sector more broadly. Can you take us back to perhaps the start for you? Maybe coming out of university. Maybe it was before that. Where did your career story in the third sector first begin? Well, it's, it probably started before university. So when I was a teenager, I did quite a lot of work. My part-time jobs were all in caring industry in one way, shape or form. Right. So I used to work in elderly care as a teenager. I used to go around to little ladies' houses and really? do their cleaning and that sort of thing. And then I also did a bit of work in learning difficulties as well. And it was through that that I realised that I wanted to do something in the kind of helping people space, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. And then I did a psychology degree. It was a... Uh, I think they still do them. It was a sandwich course, right. which meant that you did two work placements. One of them was in drugs and alcohol, and that got me into working in charities. Wow. So that's where it started. That was it. Okay, and then you ended up at Belmarsh Prison. I did. What an intro that is. Yeah, it's yeah, a great fantastic. way to start. First job out of university, Category A prison in wow. London. Wow. Uh, it was, a, it was <laughs> such a great job. It was literally one of my favourite jobs I have ever had. I loved it. What, what was it about it that you enjoyed so much? Uh, so prisons are like a miniature universe. They're mm. a completely different culture everywhere else there's such a huge array of life in there in terms of different types of people people who have done really different things people who've got very different viewpoints and ideas about how the world should work the prison officers were also amazing there's ama it's such a funny place to work because everything is about jokes it's hysterical yeah, yeah, yeah. I joined at the start of when drug and alcohol workers were first introduced into the prison system. Mm. So we were doing new stuff as well. So yeah. it was really exciting to be part of trying out a new way of talking to prisoners. And we weren't the prison officers, so they automatically wanted to come and chat. So, wow. yeah, it was really great. It's really interesting, isn't it? We have a, we've had guests on in the past that talk about their fundraising career or getting into charity fundraising. And, and quite often people start off on the front line somewhere mm. you know whether yeah. it be like yourself kind of yeah. seeing the reality of of drug and alcohol abuse uh we talked to some fundraisers who's you know have started off as face-to-face -face fundraisers because they've been used to talking to people about the cause and it's, yeah. it's interesting that that often gives you that glimpse into what is possible did you know after that role at belmarsh prison that this would that was the career path that you were on or did you I kind of fall into it a little bit after know. that? No, I think I, I think I thought there was something in it. Okay. People were trying new things, new, new ways of helping people with drug and alcohol problems. So there's a lot of... And there was a real need like there is now. Yeah. So it's, uh, sadly, that quite a lot has changed, but also quite a lot of things haven't changed for people with drug problems or alcohol problems. And so I could see that there was lots to do to make things better. And it was at the time, it was like Tony Blair era, so there was money going into the system. You could see there was improvements being made. So it was a really exciting time to join the beginning of something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really. 
at that point, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to become a counsellor. I'm going to become a therapist. That's what I'm... Because it's amazing talking to individual people and hearing their life stories and some of the, frankly, horrifying things that have happened to people that have ended up in prison. It's mind-blowing, some of the things that that I heard. So I thought, well, I'm I'm going to become a counsellor. So I went off, did some night courses, learnt, got a certificate... At the end of that, I realized that I'm a dreadful counselor (laughs) (laughs) and I'm far too interested in giving people my advice. Right. You can't really do that when you're a counselor. You're supposed to you're supposed to listen. It turns out that's an important skill, which wasn't necessarily what I was absolutely best at. Were there, you talked there about individual stories. Was it the was it the the fact that there were a mass of those individual stories that that drove you or were there particular people that you perhaps identified with and became friends with that you thought I think inspired me when I look back on the people that I worked with which was now sadly quite a few years ago there are a few people that stand out in my mind and most of them it's because of the injustice of the Mm. situation that they found themselves in that they really really stand out So I remember now a woman I worked with when I worked on the Old Kent Road uh, in a community service, which is quite a scary service uh, at the time. And she uh, used to come in for her methadone prescription because she was a heroin user with her child in a pushchair. So she'd be bringing her two-year-old in, Mm. coming into the meeting with me, breaking down and crying Mm. about her life. But she had no, there was nowhere for her child to go. There was no service that was suitable because it just wasn't funded like that. Mm. So those sorts of stories really stay with me. And sadly, a lot of the people that I worked with that then overdosed and died uh, uh, needlessly, those stories really stay with me. So I, I can picture all of those people's faces even now, even though it was 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that I can kind of connect a little bit with that part of the story because I made a move into the charity sector quite late in my career but it was through my volunteer work and I've spoken about this on the podcast before it was through my volunteer work working as a Samaritan on the phones that I kind of got exposure to those those depths of society that most people yeah. don't even see yeah. that made me appreciate that actually we all live in such a bubble that we can't forget about those depths and that yeah. we need to try and do things that to, yeah. to address them and actually I think that that drove me to kind of want to do more and give back and make a difference. Yeah. But the opposite is true as well. So some of the other people that I remember are people who who did get to recovery and have gone on to be just incredible human beings who are some of the best colleagues that I've ever worked with, Mm. who are the most sorted in terms of their just general outlook on life. They're very sensible They've kind of, because of the experiences that they've had, they are genuinely some of the most compelling, impressive people you'll ever meet is somebody who's come out of long-term drug or alcohol issues. If they've come out the other side, they're someone you want to know. Then give them a job, please, anyone out there, because people need to be back out in the world, uh, you know, having finding meaning and doing all the good stuff that helps them reintegrate back into life well, this, yeah. the, the stories is kind of classic fundraising isn't it you relate to individual stories and that's what drives you yeah. and that's what we we do every day in our fundraising jobs but talking of people going on to uh, have stellar careers mm. uh, you then moved into more senior roles i did yeah 
I did. So I'd spent a few years doing things at the front line and then I moved into looking after a community-based drug and alcohol service. And then over time, as lots of people, I suspect, do it in charity world, I had a bit of business development in my career. So I wrote quite a lot of tenders, yeah. which you're looking at me like you've done that before. But yeah. there's a lot of uh, writing involved. It's called Chuck GPT yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> those 80,000 words, someone else can write them. So I did quite a few years of business development, which in smaller organizations, you'll know, often gets connected to sort of communications, marketing, because there's... Only a very small number of people doing any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then I, I kind of got into into that side of things and thereafter external affairs and more senior jobs over the years, yeah. Nice. And what and as you've navigated that career, and we, we touched a little bit about it in the intro, what are some of the kind of reflections you have about your career that you might think that people who are listening might find useful? Like, how did you kind of navigate that path between organisations? Can you... How did you continue to develop? How did you find those new opportunities or did they find you? I suppose my reflections are I had lots of support from individual organisations that I was working for. So I, I was really lucky that I got sort of sent on various courses. I mm. did a diploma in management studies and various other things like that. But I also got a lot of support at home. So I had two kids my husband did quite a lot of taking to nursery and then doing the next bit up until today. Have driven when them for six hours to listen to them sing for no, six minutes? No, but <laughs> my son did pass his driving test today. Oh, there oh, we go. There so we there go. is a driving related story in there. So yeah, That's very good. so yeah, coming out the other side now, uh, your family life working in concert with your career is huge yeah hugely important which is interesting because some of the people that you were dealing with earlier in your career maybe didn't so have that precisely support. they didn't have yeah. that safety net around yeah. them to be able to do yeah. that so you appreciate it yeah definitely yeah and, and now as kind of ceo which i believe you've been in for less than a year uh, yep is that right how does it feel to be the one who all the decisions come back to how have you kind of had to adapt from what you've learned in your previous roles and what you've had to bring into to this role now? Yeah, I have been thinking about this quite a bit because until you are the chief executive, you don't know what kind of chief executive you're going to be. Right. And I obviously, I still might not know the answer to that question, but I think... Um, well, we surveyed all your staff members <laughs> exactly. and we've got them all here. Got, they yeah, are. Exactly. <laughs> this is what they say. Actually, in my career, I've worked for about eight different chief executives before I became a chief executive. So yeah. I've seen lots of different versions. Styles. Styles, approaches. Mm. Uh, and I've looked and sort of thought about things that I liked, things that I wouldn't have done it quite that way, etc. It is odd becoming the person where f fundamentally the buck stops with you. It's yeah. a strange transition. But I've learned lots, loads about myself mm. through the last few months in terms of what kind of one I am. Well, what, what were the things that you noticed about those other chief execs you worked with that you wanted to replicate in your own career? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe what are some of the things that you found hardest that you thought, maybe things that you thought would be easy but actually have proved quite difficult? Yeah, so I think the things that I've, the things that I've loved with previous chief executives when they do it really, really well, or it's just leadership in general, is the thing about being an umbrella. So shield people mm. from stuff that's going badly. 
but but when the sun's shining, just step out of their way and let the sun be on their faces. It's nice. such a lovely, and nice. I've I've seen that once or twice, and it's so important that people feel like they did it themselves because they did. It's kind frankly. of what I have with James, actually. Like, I'm, a, <laughs> well, I'm sure it's, it's been exactly raining like for months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's so, there's something really lovely about you know protecting people yeah. when tough times are there mm. and being the one that holds it together mm. but then yeah the the flip is really important as well so that is something that i've wanted to aspire towards yeah. and i think being available so being visible being around mm. matters to people mm. because like work's hard enough isn't it without feeling like you can't actually say what you actually think yeah. so yeah. i'm trying really hard to create a culture in drinkaware where people can come with new ideas come with different ways of thinking come with moans if they want to moan mm. and for, for me to be able to hear and listen to that and I might not necessarily agree, but I will always listen and I will always do my best to to hear. Those counselling skills that yeah, you talked about. Yeah, exactly. The list, I'm doing <laughs> better at the circle. listening. But I think for me, m- my way of being a leader is about... I find it helpful to solve problems by talking to people. Yeah. I'm not generating anything on my own. Yeah. It's with and through other people that stuff happens. Mm. And it's about combining them together in a really exciting way. So what I want, what anyone wants, is to work with amazing people who are shining stars, who are brilliant. But I'm really interested in how can you knit them all together Mm. so that everyone gets their opportunity to shine and do their best work, Mm. but that it's all going in the same direction and that you're making a huge difference in the world. So... It's really exciting. It's entirely terrifying at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the terrifying thing about stepping up into that role suddenly, okay, I'm the person that there's nobody above me that I can go to for a decision. Yeah. But I thought that approach is really lovely. Actually, let's just talk about it. Let's talk yeah. it through. You guys are the experts, that kind of classic leadership approach of yeah. let's just talk it through. The idea's there. We just need to coax it out of you. Enabling, yeah. isn't it? It's, yeah. Yeah. it's about enabling yeah. your teams. Yeah. And, you yeah. Know. yeah. And that yeah. whole thing about imposter syndrome, maybe that's a nice <coughs> way of thinking about, yes, you may be in the big role, but your job is just to talk. and Yeah, exactly. Which is genuinely how I think of my job, which is, you know, and I've said it to my kids for years, is my job is talking to people. Mm. Yeah. That is the entire job in one way yeah. or another. Yeah. Of course, there are people that you can go to. So all charities have trustee boards and I have a trustee board. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really helpful as well. And again, that's something to when you're a chief exec, you have to learn how to Everyone's work got a with boss. your board. Everyone's, Everyone's got, got a boss. boss. Yeah. And they are hugely important at the, at the top bit of an organization. Mm. You want people who are committed, who are interested, who are diverse who've got different ways of thinking at, at your trustee level as well, fundamentally, they need to be on side and believe in you and believe in what the organisation's trying to do because it's, it's yeah. their name on the bit of paper. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. A question that we ask quite a lot of people that have been in a similar position to yourselves, either leaders of organisations or, or work their way up to quite senior positions, is how they continue to develop themselves. And I'm just wondering if you've got any kind of insight or how, how do you think about your own self in terms of developing in, that, in the position of chief exec? Uh, yeah. And, and what, what do you do? What are some of maybe the, the so things that you So there's a few embrace? things, I think. One is 
never assume you're right, I think is the <laughs> important lesson. Uh, but generally, it is building networks yeah. with other people who are doing similar jobs. So I've been trying to reach out to colleagues. I'm quite lucky, so I do know one or two other people that are uh, recently moving into chief executive roles who I've worked alongside. Mm. So it's really helpful to go and talk to those people, find out what their experiences are, what's going well, what's not going so well. I'll have tried things, so I'll be able to say, well, we're doing this. What Mm. do you, you know, it's going really well. And they'll be able to say, well, this bit's going brilliantly over here. So, yeah, sharing ideas with people is so helpful yeah. and that's true at every level of somebody's career that peer yeah. support group is massive isn't it yeah. we talked to previous chief execs who at the beginning of the pandemic i remember chatting to them and they said they have a whatsapp group yeah. a load of other ceos yeah. and it's just a place yeah. that they can just scream about what's going wrong yeah. or the problems or yeah. i'm going to do this is this has anyone tried this before so they don't have to show in kind of not sh- show weakness perhaps in front of their teams but they can show strong leadership in front of their yeah. teams and about but, but show their vulnerable side perhaps to, to friends and colleagues that are going through the same thing yeah and i i i can see people doing that and i probably would have done that as well but for me it mine's more about that sort of learning opportunity with that group because mm. i try to share what i'm thinking with my team so I, a lot of those things that you're talking about, you do outside of the organization so that you're a very sort of proper, mm. formal leader inside well, the business. That's not the kind of CEO I am. Do you know, right. I kind of started over that because also I think it's important to show that you are human yeah. as well when you're vulnerable and you make mistakes and you worry about stuff as well. Yeah. I was yeah. just reflecting on the fact that we've been doing this podcast for five years and none of our friends have made it into CEO positions, <laughs> James. So uh, I'm not sure what that says about us or our friends, but yeah. uh, friends yeah. peers. Our friend, basically, our friends need to step up. Ma- that's that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. We'll, we'll put it onto them. While Jimbo's sorting out his microphone, let me just give you a reminder of where you can find out more about the Do More Good podcast. You can head to our website at domoregood.uk. There you'll find profiles, blog posts, previous episodes and a link to the newsletter, which you can sign up to get some content in your inbox every couple of weeks and hear about our latest episodes. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at domoregoodpod, plus you'll find us on LinkedIn. And we're also starting a TikTok. Oh. We'd like to talk a little bit more about Drink Aware. Yeah. Obviously, I think probably, like us, a lot of people will be aware of the name, would have seen the brand, but probably wouldn't understand what the organization does. Tell us about the mission uh, and the role that the organization has to play in society's attitude towards alcohol consumption. Yeah. So you're right. Lots of people don't know that we're a charity, but we very much are. So we're uh, an independent charity focus solely around alcohol and alcohol-related harm. Sadly, there aren't that many alcohol-only charities left anymore, so it's really important to solely be focused on alcohol. It's an interesting way that the organisation came into being when it was birthed, because it came from conversations between government and the alcohol industry Mm. and colleagues in the public health landscape as well who all came together and said we could be doing a better job around sort of early intervention, education, prevention activities. So it was that as a concept that brought the organisation into being and as a consequence 
That's why you'll see our name on the side of a bottle mm. because we are supported by through voluntary donations from the alcohol industry. So that's where our resources come from to go out and try and communicate with the public. Mm. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because that was that's on the list of questions for us. That that can that potentially is seen as a controversial place to be. First of all, though, you mentioned you're one of the only alcohol-only charities. Why do you th- why do you think that is? Why is that? So I think uh, my take on that is uh, it's an issue around funding, and often what's happening is drug and alcohol gets put together. So there are lots of drug and alcohol charities, but yep. there are relatively few that just look at alcohol. So I think that's part of the difference. And I, I suppose my view is around industry funding. Yep. We're very straightforward about where our money comes from. From my perspective, it, it, we are part of a much wider system, and my nature is fundamentally a, a pragmatist. Mm. We live in a world where there is alcohol. Yeah. It exists. We can't pretend it doesn't. Mm. And many of the places where we buy alcohol are great places to hear messages about alcohol harm. Many of the businesses that are supporting drinkware, in fact, all of them, obviously, they're full of staff who potentially know someone who's had an alcohol issue. They want to do their bit to help reduce alcohol-related harm as well. So from my point of view, it is part of the fabric of this system. There's plenty of space for other alcohol organisations that don't have that relationship. But we were built to work in partnership with the alcohol industry and public health and government to communicate to the public and to try and provide good trustworthy sensible advice to the public and uh, and Mm. that is what we are here to do yeah it's i mean when we the opportunity to sit down with you came about we thought it was really timely because listeners of the last few podcasts will know that i i ended up giving up alcohol six months ago just because on a whim i was like oh i've had enough of this and i've gone teetotal since then actually more like eight months ago um and in that time of course going into that process and kind of researching it a little bit more and you know, everywhere you go now, there's alcohol-free drinks. Yeah. And a lot of the bars that I'm seeing now have alcohol-free on draft, which is seems to be a fairly new phenomenon. And every time I ask for one, they're always sold out. We sold loads of that at the weekend. We haven't got any in. It just seems to be gathering a momentum. But it's something that we've always known about. We've always known that alcohol is bad for us. Yet, as we said in the intro, 20% of the people in the country, which I think is it might be your statistics or someone else, yeah. are drinking over the recommended amount. We know growing up, as, as I'm sure we all did back in the kind of noughties and the, the 2000s where, you know, going to university was all about drinking. And now we hear that, that children or young people now will have a different attitude to alcohol. So there seems to be a bit of a wave of momentum of, of awareness and change. Which comes to my question, how do you as an organization influence, and influence that change yeah. at scale? Because that 20% is still, what, millions and millions of people. It is. How do you try and address that? That is the big question. (laughs) So I think there's a couple of things. Drinkaware is a pretty small organisation in the grand scheme of how big charities are. But we've got a massive potential reach. As you said, we've Mm. got a really well-known brand. Lots and lots of people have heard of us. They don't necessarily know very much more than that. So there's a huge opportunity to do more. From my point of view... Do more good? uh, Yeah, definitely. Do more good. (laughs) 
changing that relationship at scale around alcohol, some of it, you're exactly right, is already happening. Yep. So there are loads of really positive trends around low alcohol, no alcohol products, seeing things in lots of different places, people trying them out. So leaning into those trends and mm. helping that happen more quickly is mm. something that's really important to us. But also for me, underneath all of it is my desire really is to... I guess, shift society's relationship with alcohol in much the same way as I think has happened with mental health, right. where 15-odd yeah. years ago, no one would have come oh, to work and be willing to say they had um, anxiety or depression. This weekend, mm. Lewis Capaldi on the pyramid stage, mm. the, 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 the swell of emotion that came out of that was incredible, wasn't yeah. it? That mm. would exactly. never have happened 10 years Exactly. Ago. That can absolutely happen for alcohol. It can absolutely happen. People die because they do not want to admit they have an issue because they do not feel they can ask for help. Lots, Nearly everyone will know someone in their wider social circle that's got an issue with alcohol. Our role is to help make it a little bit easier to have those conversations with your friends or family, or if it's you and you have your own thing going on, to find out a little bit more information mm. and to make it really straightforward for people to find out the right information and for us to really shift the dial, I think, in terms of it being normal and okay to talk about what you're drinking, talk about what you're not drinking, without fear of judgment or stigma or any of those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I mean, just again, kind of reflecting on my own experience, you know, we've seen those messages about the amount of units you should drink for what feels like 10, 15 years. Like each advert, I don't know how long it's been on, on alcohol advertising, but it's, it seems to have been there and on there for a while. Yep. Even my own experience of saying, oh, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol for a while, you know, there were still some of my friends that going, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, oh, don't be, a, you yeah. know, don't be this, don't be that. You'll what be boring. What do they call you, Kenneth? What do they call you? Can't, I can't say that. This is a family show. <laughs> Despite I was still the one dragging everyone out to go uh, yeah. to, the, uh, to the late bar on um, uh, All Staff Away Day. But, you know, there's, there's still that stigma attached to it. What, 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 have you got a problem? Were you, were you an alcoholic? Is that why you're giving up? Yeah. So... I guess my point is that nothing seems to have really changed in that time. But it feels like we're, 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 we're on the cusp of something. I actually, agree. I guess I'm trying yeah. to figure out what is that cusp? What, when do you think that, that point well, we've comes? Well, we've got a new CEO in town. Yeah, That's exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> I appreciate I'm asking you big questions yeah, here, yeah. but I'm sure the questions no, they that are. you I run over we, in your mind Yeah, constantly. we do. And I think from our point of view... When you're in the early intervention, prevention space, mm. which we are, it isn't all about what your organization's ever going to do. We're part of the picture. Yeah. And I think part of our strategy is, re is recognizing that and, and accepting that, which is no matter how big a drink aware campaign is, if we're just doing it on our own, it isn't going to be, it's mm. not going to reach those millions and millions of people that we're talking mm. about. Hence the fact it's great to work with industry because they've got huge reach. They've got, and people, you know, these are trusted brands. Mm. There's a lot to be said for a trusted brand giving you information as well as us doing it and it being trusted because it's coming from an organization with a great research team. You know, we really are very careful about exactly what we are saying we're you know we're using the most up-to-date evidence and insight to form our views 
you know, there are lots of times when we, we might disagree with some of our colleagues in industry, but there are times when we might disagree with some of our colleagues in other spaces as well. Yeah. Our job is, uh, as I started saying to one or two people, we're a bit like the BBC, uh, which is our jobs to be impartial, but find our way towards the truth. Because alcohol's really complicated for right. the public to understand. Yeah. Chief medical officer's guidelines, something like 80-odd percent of people don't know what they are. Mm. It's 14 units, by the way, people. One week there's a story telling you red wine's good for you. The next week there's a story telling you it's bad for you. It's a really hard landscape it's to interpret and to mm. understand and that's what our job is mm. it's also it's so firmly weaved into society as well it's it, I, I don't know i went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago yeah. you know it was, it was firmly part of a wedding celebration yeah. like kenneth you say you know you're out with your friends and and it's jarring for them for you not to be drinking and they're perhaps reacting not in the way we'd like to see around that but it's it's firmly part of what we do in our culture and our society and but that's also okay, mm. yeah? So we're not saying don't ever drink again at Drinkaware. What we're saying is think we want to think more holistically about your relationship with alcohol. And we want uh, for people where they are worried or concerned, for it to be easy for them, for it to be a really low threshold in terms of how much of a risk am I taking by talking about this. It mm. needs to be a really low threshold. And for people that choose not to drink, not to be asked slightly odd questions yeah. when they go and try and buy around you know those are the sorts of you know we want to move it to a world where this stuff is without judgment and people aren't passing comment or mm. wondering about things so i'm looking for there to be a world where people aren't pressurized into drinking people can choose whether to drink or not to drink and that's absolutely fine you're right Alcohol is sort of part of the fabric of society. It's been part of human culture for a really long time. I like to have a drink, mm. but... Could we ban tequila, though? Because I have a really, really terrible experiences with tequila. I can we, I just get, can I we add that I in? Can we pop that one in? I'm not sure I can <laughs> specify <laughs> particular just to, It's just tequila, really, me, don't get on. We're well, that, that might be an individual uh, yeah. relationship Can't include that? Issue, no, can't. Sadly. No. Oh, right. no. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, but it's that change, and I think you touched on it right there, it's that change in relationship, as a society, yeah. our relationship yeah. with alcohol yeah. is the big barrier yeah. here that we want yeah. to change. Exactly. And I would like to get to a place where the, it's normal to check in every now and then on how much you're drinking and just do a little check on how are you at the moment. Can, <coughs> you know, has it been, since the week after Christmas, it might be slightly different to if it's the middle of February or whatever, but that you check in regularly in much the same way as, if you go to the GP and they take your blood pressure, you're mm. not sitting worrying about it for half an hour before you have your blood pressure taken and then feeling judged by the result. Mm. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us about some of the... We, we, we touched on it at the start about a new strategy that you've, you've published and we know that it's Alcohol Awareness Week coming up. It is. Next week. I don't know if the podcast will be out by then. It might be slightly after. It was just a couple of weeks ago, I think, Kenneth. That <laughs> Sorry, just a couple of weeks ago. That's right, James. <laughs> but what are some of the kind of the, the tactics or, or campaigns or, or things that you and the team are working on to, to get us towards that North Star that we're talking about, about a society where everyone's comfortable and aware of their alcohol intake? Yep. So we're doing a few different things. So uh, we've just done some work with one of our partners at Ascot at the horse racing, uh, which was very, very Very nice. nice. Getting people to 
try out low uh, and no alcohol products, which we know, you know, people have got ideas in their mind about what they taste like, and then they work out actually they're quite nice now. So we want to see that become much more normalized. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great thing. We've got some really great websites and we've got a brilliant app. Mm-hmm. Please download our app uh, where you can track how much you drink. It's really a nice little tool that we've got. And we're trying to uh, encourage more and more people to come and, and do what I was talking about there. So just check in every now and then. So do a little self-assessment on your own alcohol use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're our job is to give people hints and tips to cut back, cut down, have a have a few drink-free days, swap out for zero-alcohol products, just be a bit more mindful about what you're drinking. We've also got a calorie calculator, which is quite helpful for some people. So there's all sorts of things that we want people to be thinking about. Yeah. And really simple things like getting up for taking your kids to football on a Saturday morning is a lot easier if you've been drinking zero alcohol products the night before. I can verify that one, that's for sure. There we go. <laughs> so, the, you know, it's about thinking about the day-to-day stuff. There yeah, are, yeah. of course, lots of long-term health implications to drinking and there's sometimes short-term health implications if you fall down the stairs and break yeah. your ankle. But there are long-term health implications which people need to know about in terms of things they probably do know about like liver uh, issues cancer. but actually there's lots of uh, yeah. the seven types of cancer so breast cancer for women there's heart issues it can affect your brain it can affect your mental health alcohol affects lots of different parts of the body mm. kind of regretting the beer i've got yeah, in front yeah. of me right now <laughs> well it, yeah. but i think the point mm. is it's about having the right information recognizing that if you're within the chief medical officer's guidelines of 14 units a week then your risk is lower much lower (coughs) and the more that you drink above those guidelines the the higher your risk is really and you're just talking there about the the ascot event that you you went along to a few weeks ago and it it makes sense if you were funded by the big alcon brands in the world we've seen it at the champions league and the big sponsorship agreements that are now focusing more on zero alcohol products or low alcohol products I can imagine that the big alcohol companies are quite conscious that actually if this wave is coming that we referred to earlier, then we need to book our ideas up because people aren't going to buy our products in the volumes that they have and therefore they need to pivot. So it seems like that is an area to kind of really lean into from your perspective. Yeah. How do you remain impartial though when your biggest funder is saying to you, well, actually, we need to drive profit for our shareholders and, and therefore we want to st- our strategies to promote low-alcohol products and that aligns with you. It yeah. feels like that could be getting a little bit messy on occasions. It can feel like that, I think, mm. if, if you're looking from the outside. Probably. I think we do lots of things to ensure that we are independent. Obviously, all of our <laughs> all of our workforce is independent. We've got an independent board of trustees. We've also got an independent medical advisory panel, and they're really important because all of our content around health and health-related harms and all of, more or less, all of the things of, of notes that we do, they mm. have a good look at before they go out of the door so that the public can be really assured that what we're putting out into the world is completely neutral. And actually, from my point of view, my team are coming from the point of view of we are all here to reduce alcohol-related harm. Yeah. And, th- and the people that are funding us, they live in society. They also want to reduce alcohol-related harm. This isn't the only way you can do it. There are other ways you can do it. But for us, 
being realistic, the alcohol industry is there. We can reach more people with mm. and through them than we can by ourselves. Makes, you know, it's a way of coming at the problem and reaching mm. lots of people, which is what I think needs to happen. We know the answer to this one, but looking forward, what are you hoping for, maybe personally in your career in the big gig and maybe wider with, with Drinkware as well? What are you hoping to see? I think I'm hoping for massive societal change. <laughs> I'm not... Uh, Is that on the to-do list? Yeah, every yeah, morning? it's on the to-do yeah. list. So, yeah, I really want to make that shift, that cultural shift. Britain has got a... Uh, and has had a really difficult relationship with alcohol over a really long time. Things are starting to move anyway, so for us, maybe it is pushing at a door that's already ajar, Mm. which is really helpful. But I want it to be okay to talk about alcohol. The the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever it is that people are or aren't doing, I would like people to be able to talk to their friends and families, their loved ones, because so many of the people that I've spoken to in my life didn't want to tell Mm. their partner they wouldn't want their kids to know they wouldn't want work to know it's that's got to change Mm. if we're gonna reduce alcohol harm at scale and i think we can before we get on to to you are there societies that have got a better relationship with alcohol is there any uh, anything anywhere out there that you think is a kind of aspirational i don't know a huge amount about all of the different countries in the world weirdly Basically, Western societies and Eastern Europe and Russia have got quite poor relationships with alcohol, particularly Russia and sort of Eastern Europe. And then some cultures in the world have drink significantly less, so particularly sort of Asia and that sort of part part of the world. But I think no one's necessarily got all of the answers we're all and no one's on gone on the, the journey, journey that we're looking to go on yeah to, exactly being so interweaved as we've spoken about to a point where yeah. it's not yeah. i just wonder if th- is there anything else that kind of comes to mind racking my brains where we've seen that that level of societal change and actually mental health we touched yeah, on yeah, earlier it, that feels like a good example yeah um, well drink i have to say drink driving is kind of kind of linked to one yep 30 yep. odd maybe 30 40 uh, uh, Exactly. However long ago that it was okay. Wearing seatbelts, all of these sorts of things. Yeah. Not okay yeah. to do exactly. that. Exactly. It's yeah. not okay to drink drive. Yeah. You know, when I was a child, I remember my grandma being very upset about the fact she was going to have to have seatbelts installed in yeah. her car. Yeah. It was, r- you know, people would complain, wouldn't wear them. No yeah. one now would dream of setting off down the road without their seatbelt in their car. No. It's cultural change like that takes, yeah, takes time. a while. Yeah. But it is achievable, and some of that stuff is built out of businesses. So seatbelts started with Volvo inventing them, and then they gave the patent away for free. So industry can really drive some of this stuff, that and we're seeing that with low and no products. Oh my gosh! How many like yeah. because yeah, there's there is so many now, isn't there? So many startups trying to. There was one that someone was telling me about that that's that's claiming to have the same effect as alcohol, but without the yeah. alcohol. You know, these ones yeah, are yeah. quite interesting. You're like. Oh, yeah. What do you mean that can chemistry? That? Yeah, exactly. Like, mm, not sure. Um, I buy into that, but but yeah, it's certainly an interesting area. And Karen, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think it's a really relevant topic, and it's great to hear your experience. And we wish you lots of luck in it. You've thank got a big you. challenge ahead, but we'll uh, give it a go. You'll <laughs> give it a good go. We're not going to let you go quite yet, though. I know you've probably got a home that you need to get back to. 
we have some quick fire questions that we put in. And, uh, and, and oh, as you great. said at the start of the podcast, <laughs> you've listened to several of our episodes before. So I did say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you'll be it's aware no of, of what they are. Um, so I'll yeah. go first. Look, if you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? I have no idea. If I met my 20-year-old self, I'd say don't go on so many diets. That's nice. what I'd say. Yeah. Nice. It's okay. a real waste of time. Really? Yeah. 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 Okay. That, that is a lovely piece of advice. Yeah. yeah very good. Take that one. Uh, could you tell us about one life hack, a productivity tool, or a skill that you have come across or used recently that you think everybody needs to know about? This isn't a very quick fire. Quick fire, is it? So we'll not. edit it to make it seem so. Don't <laughs> <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. I have got a piece of software. Go on. Yeah, we use Monday.com, Monday. which is a planner tool, which yep. is phenomenal. It's so helpful. So That's we use it for running good. all of our meetings. We do all our forward planners on it. Okay. Nice. My digital we'll team, one. they know what they're doing. The only problem with the only, is it quite niche uh, <laughs> point around this. You can't change the colours on Monday.com. I know. So for someone that, that is like obsessed with everything And you can't do it horizontal. It's all up or downy. That's the only downside. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, brilliant. Other than that, brilliant. <laughs> I've got yeah. a little anecdote about a charity CEO. <laughs> I'll not say who or where it was, but a f- let's say a friend of mine went to see their CEO about something and she, she said to the CEO, oh, I sent you a message on Teams about this about six weeks ago. The CEO said, What's Teams? <laughs> she, she went and said, oh, it's that icon on your desktop there. Pressed the button, opened it. And it a was, flood of it was pain. a flood of red and messages from about <laughs> 300 people. I thought that was a good attitude as a CEO. Just ignore it. Yeah. If it's important, they'll come and find you. Eventually, they'll knock on the actual door, won't yeah, they? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, last question then. Before we let you go, as a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, What's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? Oh, my goodness. I know so many people that have done amazing things for other people. My favourite recent story is uh, an ex-colleague of mine recently got awarded an MBE, which was really lovely, for the work that she does highlighting criminal gangs and child exploitation, particularly county lines based up in Shropshire. And uh, she's just a power. She's Amazing. a force uh, in the world. So, yeah, she's pretty inspiring. What's her name? Do you want to Sonia. Sonia. Sonia Jones. Sonia Jones. Sonia Jones. Amazing. Coming up next week on the Do More Good <laughs> podcast. <laughs> thank well, you look, very much. Yeah, Karen, thank you so much for that. That's right. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about the charity or maybe yourself or connect online or reach out anything that you've said are you happy to yeah absolutely please do drop us a note go and have a look at the drinkaware website drinkaware.co.uk or get hold of me uh, on linkedin or drop a note to the contact us email and they'll pop pop them through to me brilliant james any final thoughts nothing's been great i think um, big aspirational goals is something that we quite enjoy talking about on this uh, show and changing uh, society's relationship with alcohol yeah, yeah. feels like a big punchy one that should be is. going for lovely yeah. stuff sounds yeah. good all right we'll catch up with you soon nice one thank, thank you, you. thank you just before we go can we ask a favor if you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. 
Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good. Thank you.